You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, March 20th, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. But my name is Raymond. I'm also one of the pastors here, and uh, it's just always great to be with you guys like this this morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin there in Genesis chapter 3, and... We'll spend more of our time uh, in Acts chapter 17, so if you just want to pre-mark your Bible there as well. Genesis chapter 3 and Acts chapter 17, and I will pray in a minute, but I I really just want to do a very simple thing this morning with what we're doing in in keeping with what we're looking at in terms of evangelism and and some of the things God's doing through Redemption Hill Church and some of our members, even, even all across the world in various places to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ um, to the unreached in various parts of the world, and, and uh, even what he's doing through us right here, we just want to focus on a couple of things about evangelism, and, and really I'll just give us some guiding principles. How can you and I, how can you and I uh, perhaps be most helpful to other people that God has brought into our lives when it comes to to people that we're praying for and that we'd like to see come to faith in Jesus Christ? How can we perhaps be most helpful and effective in our efforts and in our our prayers? So we'll we'll focus there. Let's start in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And right before we actually read verses 6 through 9, I'll pray first and then I'll say something by way of confession and then we'll get into it. Lord, we, we thank you so much for gathering us here again this morning. And uh, just pray... That, that what we share this morning would, would fall on ready hearts, or that we would see your son Jesus as not only necessary for, for our own souls, but for the, the souls of those around us, that you would give us um, a renewed sense of passion to make your name known, and to see people who have been separated from you because of sin, to see them restored to a right relationship with you through faith in Christ. We, we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So a little bit of a confession based on last week. As Pastor Robert Green was preaching here from Genesis 3, we came across that part in the Garden of Eden where they, they had already eaten the forbidden fruit and God had stepped onto the scene. Do you remember? And he comes and he, he begins to confront them in, in a gracious manner. He, and he, he approaches Adam, and as he begins to engage Adam, you know, Adam starts to blame shift. He blames Eve. He, technically, he blames God as well. He says, Lord, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. That, that's, I mean, if we're going to blame people, I'm third. It, it's, this is like the opposite of summer's best two weeks for those of you, you know, God is first, others second, I'm third. This is like with blame, you know, God is first or second, others are second and I'm third. Uh, You get the idea there. Eve does the same thing. Well, the serpent, it was his fault. And as I was listening uh, last week, I thought, man, this is is one of those manifestations of sin that shows up in my life more than I'd like to admit. And so, you know, just praying over that this past week and even, even last week at the time, I leaned over and said something to my family as we were listening. I said, you know, Daddy does that sometimes, and I I was half thinking, you know, this is a great time for one of them to say, like, no, you know, Dad, I don't know. (laughs) 
I don't, I don't think that's as big of, a, of an issue in your life as you made it sound. Um, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> that did not happen at all. What did happen instead, I'll, what did happen instead is one of my children, I won't say who, especially since they're here, but one of my children actually said, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like when daddy eats the chips and blames mommy for buying them. <laughs> I thought, so not only did I not get the encouragement I might have been half fishing for, I was, uh, I got an illustration <laughs> to highlight the principle. Anyway, so that if you want to join me in praying for my soul and any, any blame shifting that might show up in your own life, we can, we can pray for each other. Let's get to Genesis chapter 3 here. And I'll start to kind of highlight some, as we read here and then over in Acts 17, just some guiding principles. Again, how we can perhaps be most effective and helpful to others in our lives as we seek to help them come to faith in Christ. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. The tempter had prevailed at this point, and it says here, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before I get to what I'm highlighting here, it's interesting, isn't it, that Satan, the serpent, had promised this. Your eyes will be opened. It's, it's, it's really interesting that what he promised them is if you, if you doubt, deny, and move away from God's word, and if you embrace other ideas instead... What you'll experience is a kind of enlightenment. Your eyes will be opened. It's the same today. So many people tell us if we just move away from what God plainly says, what we will experience is not the adverse and horrible consequences he has warned us about, but rather a kind of enlightenment. You'll you'll join the enlightened of society having left these superstitious ideas behind. I want to say very emphatically, we don't want to see any of you go down that road. All right? The voice which promises us an enlightenment on the other side of turning away from God's word is not a voice that you and I want to become too familiar. So here in verse 8, we'll pick it up. Ah, what, great, what, great, what a great sound. Uh, if they knew what was happening, what a great sound this would, would have been instead of a fearful sound. But... Sin had entered the picture, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which, which is the first piece of evidence that sin really does affect our intellectual capacities, because if you think you can hide from God behind a couple of trees that he made, something's off. But that's what we did. They hid from the Lord Behind a couple of trees, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? First first principle for us, first guiding principle in our conversations with others as we seek to help them come to faith in Christ. Have you ever noticed that God's very first words to a human being who had become separated from him because of sin came in the form of a question. 
God's very first words to fallen human beings came in the form of a question. He said, where are you? Now, Robert pointed this out last week. Is God attempting to get information here that he currently does not have? Is that why he asked this question? No, this question is for Adam's benefit. It's designed to help Adam understand where he now stands in relationship to God. Adam, where are you? I know know you're behind the tree. But what is your spiritual location in relation to me? Do you understand what has happened now? And God graciously comes to him and gives him a question that will help him to locate himself spiritually. We want to do the same thing. In our conversations with others, we want to be able to to ask them questions that will help them to locate themselves in relationship to God. One of the questions I've always found to be, and I'm not good at this, by the way, so one of the questions that I think God has shown me that has been very helpful in my conversations is this. I've learned to ask people, tell me, what do you believe about God today? And how does that compare to what you believed when you were younger? And no matter how old they are now, there was a time where they were younger. (laughs) So it works for everybody. But tell me what you believe today and how does it compare to when you were younger, when you first started to think about God and or religion? And I've just gotten into some of the greatest conversations with people about that. No matter where they are, whether they're currently Christians or not, it's just been a, a helpful way to open that door and to take that relationship a little bit further down the road to actually speaking directly about Christ and what he means to us. And so if, if all of you were to take that very same question in the exact same way that I asked it and try to use it on everyone in your life, we would be well on our way to looking like a mindless cult. And, and so what I encourage is not that, but what I encourage you to do is to say, Lord, you know the people that you've brought into my life. You know what questions might be most helpful for opening a door for further conversation with them. Help me to know what, what that is and, and, and put those questions on my heart and help me, to, help me to walk through any door that you might open. Lord, in fact, I ask for that now, that you would help us as we move to Acts 17. Help us to, to learn how to ask those kinds of leading questions to help others locate themselves spiritually. And then to, to kind of give us some more guidance as we go into how to continue to converse with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Flip with me, if you would. Flip to Acts 17, and I'll show you a few other ones there. Go as fast as I can for the sake of time. But in Acts chapter 17, we, we get to see another example of this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, he's actually in Athens, Greece at this time. He had just been in Thessalonica, where the Thessalonians live. He passed through Berea, a nearby city. And now he's in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. And in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, we read this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, Silas and Timothy, and we know that because the very first verse before that says that that's who he was waiting for. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, when the Bible says Paul's spirit was provoked here, that word provoked is a very interesting word in the original Greek language. It's a, it's a temperature word. 
It means he got hot. It, it was, it was uh, actually the word has the root word for oxygen in it. And you like, like how oxygen gives more life and intensity to a flame? Here it was, what the Bible is saying here is that Paul, his zeal for the honor and glory of God was being stoked into full flame here because he looked around and saw that the city was full of idols and God was not honored as he should be. Yet, verse 17, he was still able to calmly reason with people. A delicate skill. Even though he was full of passion and zeal, he was still able to reason with people. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities or foreign gods. And they said this, end of verse 18, because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Here's the second guiding principle for us. As we seek to bring people into conversations that hopefully lead to them coming to faith in Christ. Notice here that Paul was willing to bring Jesus up in his conversations with people that he had just met. Did you catch that? He doesn't know these people very well. He's only just met them, perhaps a few hours ago, perhaps a few days ago. And yet here he is already willing to bring up Jesus, the resurrection, and obviously in between that, the cross, and what it means for them, even though he doesn't know them super well. Now, even as I say that, and as I look at your faces, some of you are already terrified. I've said a few words, and you're thinking, if, if, he, if he thinks I am going to attempt to do this, he's got another thing coming. Now, I understand. I, I think in general, and this is true, I, when I was a, a campus minister locally here at Richmond and VCU, by, by the way, spiders, I'm sorry, VCU, sorry. A lot of March Madness, I'm very, very sorry. NIT, NCAA, some of you talking about basketball, which I usually don't do, by the way. All my illustrations are typically soccer-related because that's God's sport. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> just divided the room. No. Anyway, I apologize. Sorry, Richmond and VCU, next year. But my point was to say, when I was a campus minister on those campuses, I would get into all these conversations about this very thing, right? And you, you kind of listen to people and certain Christian groups would always lean in the direction of saying, like, we should, we should never really bring Jesus up too quickly. We need to instead engage in what we call relational evangelism. And I, look, I could understand and appreciate what they were talking about uh, because I, I do believe most, I think most effective evangelistic conversations do take place over the, the course of time. In fact, I had a saying about it. I would teach the students. I'd say, genuine faith tends to cook in the crock pot more than in the microwave. All right? but, but all the same, even, even though that tends to be true in our experience, notice, though, you, you don't want to go so far as to reject even the possibility that God could so open a door with someone you've only just met um, that you actually are able to bring Jesus up in that very first conversation and, and actually go through all the different things we'll see Paul go through in his conversation with the Athenians. 
It really can happen. And, and so I just want to encourage us as a church, wherever you are on the shyness or boldness scale, um, it, it could be that most of our, our efforts will, will take place over many conversations. In fact, we might even just be part of a relay team of messengers that God uses for that person. But don't be surprised if God opens a door and intends for you to get the whole gospel message all the way, all the way up to judgment, the need for repentance, and the sufficiency of Christ, even in the very first conversation. I know it's happened in my case, in, in, in certain cases, as I've talked with people, I know some of you have had that same experience, and, and I just want all of us to at least be open to it. So that's the second guiding principle, is, is Paul was willing to bring Jesus up, even with people he had only recently met. And here's a third one. Not only was Paul willing to bring Jesus up rather quickly um, when speaking with people he had met, but you'll see something else here in Acts chapter 17, verse 23. Making our way there, um, Paul in verse 22 was standing in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. The third guiding principle here, notice what Paul does. The Bible says, as he passed along and observed. You see that? Paul passed along and observed. He very carefully studied. When he engaged with people, he listened. He was observing, he was observing what they believed. He, he could look at certain things and gain an idea of what this current culture or what these people believed. And as he spoke with individuals, he listened and he got a sense of where they were in terms of their current beliefs. We want to do the same. We want to pass along and observe, and in particular, the objects of worship of those around us. And when I say objects of worship, it can include things we would typically put in the religion category, but it can include more than that. Think of the things that tend to capture people's hearts the most. Right? You want to pass along and observe, get to know people at that level. What really makes this person passionate and what really gets this person going? Uh, there's probably something there that is considered to be of ultimate value and worth to them. And a lot of times your most effective conversations with them around spiritual things, and in particular when it comes to introducing Christ, they'll, they'll probably travel through that door. And, and in fact, this was the case for Paul he found an open door for his message right at that point. You see that in verse 23. Look there again. Paul says, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And so Paul found an open door for his message. And the fourth guiding principle I want to highlight here is, notice that Paul was comfortable. He was comfortable acknowledging that where others only had uncertainty, he had clarity. I'll say that again. Paul was willing to acknowledge that where others only had uncertainty about God, by God's grace, he had been given clarity. And in fact, listen, this is how Paul said it. He said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Where you have questions, by God's grace, I have answers. 
And Paul was willing to acknowledge that. And here's why that's important for us today. I think we live in a time and a place in our culture where uncertainty is celebrated as a virtue. Uncertainty is how you prove that you're humble. Right? I want to challenge that idea as a, as a Christian. Because if you remember what we believe as Christians, we believe that the God who created all of us and this world in which we live, that he is not a God who has remained silent, but that he has actually spoken to us about who he really is and how he should be approached. And where God has spoken clearly, humility takes the form of confidence in what he has said. And it it throws out confidence in any competing idea. It doesn't dress itself up as uncertainty and then confuse that for humility. So humility and uncertainty can often be found in the same place, but we should never believe that they are the same thing. They are not. And so you're not necessarily moving away from humility if you are moving forward in confidence regarding what God has said. Confidence enough to say, I see your uncertainty. By God's grace, I have clarity on that issue and I'd like to share it with you. Are you all with me on this? I know that's hard because we're going to be judged harshly for doing things like that. We will be misunderstood as lacking in humility. All right, but it's not necessarily a lack of humility to have confidence in what God has given us clarity regarding. Okay, I want to encourage you there. And in fact, in fact, Paul not only was willing to say that he had confidence where others only had confusion and uncertainty, he actually would go further and, and literally point out some of the specific errors in their current beliefs. Now, some of you are getting really nervous. This is something that, again, it doesn't all have to happen in the first or second conversation or the first 15 conversations. I don't, I don't know how it will play out. But this is a very risky thing, especially if we're talking about a relationship where you're going to see this person frequently, either every day or every week. You're going to see this person a lot. They live on your streets. They're in your family. And you're, you would be taking a huge risk with your relationship and the peace that exists between you and that person in order to try to facilitate them finally having peace with God. So I still think the risk is worth it, but it's a real risk and there are real consequences to it that can affect us, that can affect our families, that can affect people around us. So it's not a light thing and I don't want to make light of it. But notice the Apostle Paul here, at least in this context, was willing to correct some of the errors that people had regarding God and, and the truth that he had revealed. In fact, as we read through, you'll see some of them. Here in, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, so these people believed that they could kind of build a structure for God and put him in there and confine him to that sort of sphere of their, of their choosing. Here's where I go to meet with God. Here's where God is. 
but we've domesticated him. We've, we've kind of given him boundaries. And so once I leave that place, God is not to leave the place I've set for him and interfere with any other part of my life. But see, Paul would go on to say, no, it, it, we, we aren't the ones who have set boundaries for God. We can't look at God and say, you get Sunday morning, I get the rest of the week to be self-determined. No, no, God is not confined to the structures we have assigned to him. In fact, it's quite the other way around, right? Look at what Paul says. In verse 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. God, God sets boundaries and limitations for us, never the other way around. We don't say, well, well God, you can, you can speak to me about spiritual things like what I should believe concerning angels or demons and what I should believe about church. But, but over here, this is a romantic relationship. This is someone I'm interested in. You, I've set a boundary for you and I don't expect you to creep into this and start to tell me how this should look as well. But, but God is never that domesticated. We, we can't just assign boundaries for him. Believe me, he's, he's everywhere. He's in every part of our lives. Paul was willing to correct some of the, the incorrect ideas people had in these very sensitive conversations. Um, and we want to be able and willing to do the same, right? The different things that we bring up will depend upon the person we're speaking to. Um, in the same way that if you have a toolbox full of tools, you know, you, you don't bring out the hammer if what you need is a screwdriver. You bring out the appropriate tool for the appropriate conversation with a particular individual. But we do want at times to be willing to take a risk with our relationships. We are willing as Christians to risk our relationships, however dear they may be in this life, to risk our relationships with those around us in hope that even if for a time, even if for a time we lose favor with some of those dear people, it may just be used by God to move them closer to peace with him through Jesus Christ. If, if I know that the reward for losing a, a temporary kind of peace between me and one of my cousins is that they might be nudged closer to considering Christ, it's a risk I'm, I'm willing to take. It's a risk I'm willing to take. I want to encourage all of us in that direction. Getting to the last couple here, another guiding principle. I think this is number six. Paul was actually open and honest about the reality of the coming judgment and our need for repentance. Look, look at how he says it here by the time we get down to verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to, everybody, repent. And here's why. Verse 31. Because... God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And we know he's talking about Jesus because he says he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. All here, it appears all in the first conversation with these new acquaintances, Paul 
gets all the way to the point of, of raising Jesus and bringing him into the conversation and saying, look, I'm getting a sense of what you believe as you talk to me. What you believe about God, what you believe about what is okay, what you believe about what is acceptable, what you believe about what is right. And I'm really listening as you, as you talk to me about all of that. And I can also detect that you would like for me to agree with you completely in what you're saying. And, and here's where we take that risk. You know, as a Christian, I actually believe something different. Would you mind if I tell you what I believe? It is different in some ways. And I'm, I'm more than willing to continue this and hear what you have to say about my beliefs. But, but I do believe something different about that, that point. Like you, you said you believe that regardless of what someone believes about Jesus or regardless of what religious path they've chosen, you believe that ultimately, as long as they are a good person, however we would measure that, that will ultimately be acceptable to God. To be perfectly honest, I'm a little nervous to bring this up, but as a Christian, I believe something different. I actually believe something different. I'd like to share it with you and hear what you think. It's a risk. It's a huge risk. But part of what we'll tell them if God keeps that door open and we're allowed to go far enough in the conversation, part of what we'll tell them is that actually, no, no, we, we have to come to God in the way that he has revealed is acceptable to him. We can't just figure out our own path. The, the thing that has gone wrong between us and God is something called sin. It has changed the nature of our relationship to him. In fact, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your sins have separated you from God. So there is a distance, a separation between us and God now due to something called sin. And the only way for the relationship to be made right again, the only way for us to be with the Lord again in peace and unity and harmony is for that sin to be effectively dealt with. The offense, the sin, must be dealt with in a way that actually works. And people will understand this because they know in their own relationships, when they offend somebody, they'll say things like, is everything okay? I feel like there's some distance between us, right? They'll get that, that an offense... If what we're talking about is not just a religion, but if Christianity is actually a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which it is, then it's, it's going to operate by those relational dynamics. And so people understand, if they look at it as a relationship with God, if I have offended God, if I have sinned against him, that offense puts some distance or separation between us. And they'll also understand the concept of debt, which needs to be forgiven. They'll understand that the offense has created a debt. And we're, we'll be sharing all of this with people, that actually my sin created a debt that, be, that was so big I couldn't pay it. As we sang earlier, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. 
right? This sin creates a debt. And, and, and so when you look at it and you think about it this way, people will get that. In, in fact, if you've ever really hurt somebody that you were in a, rela- a relationship with and you've really offended them with something you've done, and if it's bad enough, you might, you might acknowledge that a debt has been created even with the words that you speak. You might say something like, I, I feel like I owe you an apology. Have you ever realized that? I owe you an apology. The very language we use acknowledges the fact that our offense has created a debt. And we owe this person something. When, when we understand that we are in a relationship with God, it, it only makes sense that our sin, our offense, has created a debt. God is owed something because of our sin. The question then becomes, do we have the spiritual resources to pay it back? Do we actually have the spiritual resources to pay that debt off and to restore that relationship from our end? No. People understand this. And this is, this is part of the conversation I'd be having with my friend who doesn't yet believe in Christ. No, people understand this. And you, you can convince them even and, and say to them, look, you understand this already. If you've really done anything super bad, then you've somehow gotten beyond just saying, I believe I owe you an apology. You, you realize that apology will be inadequate. And you might progress and graduate to say something like, I can never repay you for what I've done. You're acknowledging that you are bankrupt. You are spiritually without the resources to actually pay that debt off and restore the relationship from your end. And so if that relationship is going to be restored, there is only one way for that to happen. It must be restored from the other end. The offended party must assume the cost of that debt through forgiveness. Forgiveness is how that debt is paid and dealt with. The debt is forgiven. That's an economic term, forgiveness. And then we begin to tell our friend how God did that in our relationship with him. You see, God sent his son Jesus into the world at just the right time, Romans 5, 6. While we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. We were without the spiritual resources to pay for the debt that our sin had put between us and God. We were without the ability to bridge the gap that our sin had put between us and God. And so God, understanding and desiring for that relationship to be put back together and understanding it could only happen from his end, God once again began to walk toward us as he did in the garden. And and by the grace of God, we began to hear the footsteps of God once again. This time, this time. He would come in his son, Jesus Christ. And he would take pity and have mercy on fallen human beings in the greatest way possible. He would literally come and walk among us. They didn't just hear his footsteps. People got to see him. 
And he explained to them, I am here to pay the debt for your sin. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was a living sacrifice. And he lived a perfect life without any sin. And he he took that perfect life to the cross and he died on the cross. And it was a transaction. Lots of people have died on Roman crosses. But when Jesus died on a Roman cross, it was actually a transaction between him and our heavenly father. He was paying the debt that we all owed because of the sins that we had committed. And God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And he proved it by raising him from the dead. And now, where you have uncertainty, I am telling you, you can know for certain that if you put your faith in Christ, God will accept you. He will forgive all your sin. He will welcome you for all eternity. And you will be with him forever. Leave everything else behind and put everything you have in Jesus you will never be put to shame. And, and so all, may, Paul, maybe, we, didn't, we don't know for sure. He, maybe he said something like all of this to the Athenians that day. What we do know, last guiding principle, and then we'll pray. What we do know is that however Paul conducted himself in this conversation with, with his new friends, he conducted himself in such a way that at least some people even if they didn't cross the line into faith in Christ right at that moment, at least some people were willing to hear him again. Look at, look at verse 30, 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Some went as far as believing. But I, I want to encourage us to remember that the gospel itself has within it its own offense. It, it, it has enough offense in it already because it's so clear about the fact that God, God deserves our complete loyalty, allegiance, and love. And if we have taken it anywhere else, we have, we have grieved the heart of God. We have sinned against him, and we actually deserve the punishment that God says belongs to those who have offended him in this way. That is offensive enough. You and I don't need to add any further offense through our own personality or through our own conduct. Now, I, I have done that quite often throughout the course of my life, you know, especially when I was younger. I wish I could go back 15 or 20 years and fix some of the conversations that I had. Um, but that is water under the bridge. For all the opportunities ahead of us, I want to just encourage us to remember that the power to bring people who are currently separated from God into a right relationship with Christ, the power is in the message itself. That's why Romans 1.16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The power is not in the messenger, but in the message. And the offense is great enough already, we don't need to add to it. So I, I just wanna leave you with all of those things. A few guiding principles as we think about how God might use us to bring others to faith in Christ through our conversations with them. And as we're praying for people, and I wanna encourage you, think of, you know, it's interesting, a quarter, a quarter of this year has already gone by. Can you believe that? 2022 just came, it feels like yesterday, and we're already a quarter of the way through. 
And so a quarter of the opportunity in this calendar year uh, to move that ball forward with some of our friends, relatives, and, and others is behind us. But three quarters are still ahead of us. And so I, I just want to encourage us to think about one or two people, you know, one or two people that God would perhaps want us to, to be willing to take a risk with in our conversations, maybe even this year, to take a risk, maybe even this week, if he opens that door, for us to be willing to walk through it and, and to see, has God opened the door for me to bring Jesus up in this conversation? And what might he do with that? And, and beyond thinking of those one or two people, um, just want to ask you to be actively praying for whoever God puts on your heart. One person said, it might, it might conceivably be the case that the only people who don't ultimately come to faith in Christ are the people that no believer is praying for. Now, I can't prove that to you, but I just thought it was really interesting when I heard that. So let's be actively praying for these one or two people God would put on our heart, and let's be praying that he would actually move us to take one or two steps in the direction of bringing Christ up in our conversations with them. Let's take a moment to pray now as we reflect on what God has said. Father, as, as uh, many of us prepare to take communion here, I pray that... Uh, that you would just remind us of our need to remember the place you have assigned to evangelism in the Christian life and, and to do what you did, to, to pursue those who are still separated from you because of sin. Lord, make us wise. Give us the boldness that, that, that we will need. Protect us from any uh, obnoxious behavior or adding any offense to your gospel. Help us to overcome whatever obstacles would be present in us so that we would be the best possible reflection of your heart toward the people that you're bringing into our lives. That's what we seek. That's what we hope for. Increasingly, that's the direction we want our lives to go in. And for anyone here this morning, Lord, who, who may still be in that position where they say, I, I don't believe I've been brought into that right relationship with God through faith in Christ. I pray that something that I said even today to, to those who already belong to Christ, I, I pray that something they heard this morning would be of help to them as they consider Christ for themselves. And I ask all this in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.